Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. It makes intuitive sense that as climate concerns grow, green investments would outperform investments in dirty industries. To put this into the context of this podcast, as policymakers require more renewable energy to be deployed, and as investors flock to companies that produce green products that are expected to be in ever-increasing demand, the value of those technologies and products would increase, rewarding investors through higher returns. Yet recent research suggests that this assumption may not be true, or at least that the story isn't as clear-cut as one might intuitively expect. On today's podcast, I'll be exploring the drivers of green returns with Luke Taylor, a professor of finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. In new research, Taylor and co-authors look at the past decade of returns on ESG portfolios and how a variety of forces, from federal and state environmental policies to consumer and investor demand for all things green, combined to produce some surprising financial outcomes. Based on that experience, Taylor will explore how ESG policy and investors' motivation to do good by going green may lead to unexpected investment outcomes and, by extension, influence the flow of capital into green industries in years to come. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wonder if you could get us started by talking about your research. You and a pair of co-authors examined the return on ESG investment or portfolios over the past decade. Fundamentally, what did you find? Well, I, yeah, I should mention my co-authors on this project are Lubos Pastor at the University of Chicago and Rob Stambaugh, my, my colleague here at Wharton. In a nutshell, what we find is that over the last decade, green assets massively outperformed brown assets, but that outperformance was unexpected. So in this project, we wanted to, to, to study these returns of green versus brown assets. And to do that, we focused in on the E part of ESG. We focused on environment. And so we're going to de define a green stock as the stock of an environmentally friendly company and brown is the stock of an environmentally unfriendly company. What we expected to find is, well, we expected green assets to underperform. And that prediction came from some economic logic. It came from a, a theory paper we had written. And according to economic logic, green assets should have lower expected returns. The reason is there are these ESG investors out there who like holding green assets. So they're willing to accept a lower expected return to, to hold them and vice versa. You know, they really dislike holding brown assets. So you're going to have to offer them a higher expected return to induce them to, to hold them. So we should expect green to underperform. But when we looked at the data, we saw the exact opposite. We saw that green massively outperformed brown from the years 2013 to 2020. They outperformed by, I think it was 174 percentage points mm. over eight years. So that got us wondering, you know, what, what was wrong with our logic? What, so to answer that, we tried to understand why. Why did green assets perform so well? And well, we, we realized there was something very special about those years. What was special is that there was this huge awakening to the crisis of climate change. Basically, we all became much more concerned about climate change. And as we became more concerned, well, that led customers to buy more green products, buy less 
uh, dirty products, possibly prompted by government regulation. It also probably prompted a lot of investors to become ESG investors and prompted huge flows of money into green stocks and outflows from brown stocks. So that was possibly what happened. To, to, to test that, we had to go out and measure people's concern about climate change. And we did that using uh, a data series by another team of co-authors, Dave Ardian and, and, and co-authors. They measure the level of concern about climate change every day during this period. And they do that by machine reading the eight top newspapers, counting the number of stories about climate change, measuring how much concern and risk those stories express. And what we find empirically is that on days when there was an unexpected amount of scary climate change news, green stocks outperformed brown stocks. In other words, bad news about the climate is good news for green. And that kind of makes sense, right? If we all become more concerned about climate change, well, we probably expect governments to act. And they're probably going to act in a way that favors green companies and, and maybe penalizes brown companies. So that's about climate risk. What that result shows is that climate risk really moves stock prices. These shocks to concern about climate move stock prices. So then we decided we wanted to go a step further and we asked, what if those eight years had been different? What if we could replay history? Hmm and do it different. Without the shocks. Without the shocks. What if we could go back in time and turn off those climate concern shocks? What if we hadn't become more concerned about climate? We can do that with our simple model. What we find is that when you turn off these climate concern shocks, the outperformance of green stocks completely vanishes. In fact, in certain specifications, green stocks would have underperformed had we not become so concerned about climate. What's the basis of that underperformance? Well, theory tells us we should expect them to underperform. So our original prediction was that we expect green to underperform. And once, it's kind of nice, once we take all the shocks out, they do underperform, consistent with economic logic, but just by, just by a little bit. This is the basis of our main result, which is that the only reason green stocks outperformed is that there were these huge shocks, unexpected shocks that, that hit during this period. Explain to me, what is that economic logic that predicts underperformance? I'm not sure if I understand that. So here's the logic. There are some ESG investors out there, right? They like holding green stocks. That bids up the stock price for green stocks. Their, their extra demand bids up the stock price for these green stocks. That means today or at the beginning of our sample in 2013, green stocks had high prices. Having a high price today is the same as saying having low expected returns in the future. They're the same thing. And conversely, these ESG investors, they really dislike holding, for example, coal stocks. That reduces the demand for coal stocks. That means those coal stocks have a low price today. Equivalently, they have high expected returns in the future. Let's talk a little bit more about these shocks. You mentioned policy in there. So when we look at climate shocks, we could be looking at natural disasters, flooding, fires, wildfires, but we could also be talking about policy developments. What are the shocks primarily that you're, you're discussing here? We took a closer look by taking this measure of climate concern and breaking it into its parts. For example, we can measure news stories about natural disasters. We can measure news stories about government summits, about regulation. And to our surprise, we found that news about natural disasters did not move stock prices, green versus brown. 
what really moved Green versus Brown returns was news about regulation, climate-related regulation, and news about climate-related government summits. So the plot thickens here, and this, this is something you pointed out in the paper we've been referencing so far, and also in a, uh, I guess, a companion piece of research that came out a little bit earlier. We, we've talked about markets pricing and ESG factors and the importance of shocks in driving unexpected returns for green assets, green companies, green stocks. But there's a second critical element here, and that is as more money is directed to green companies, the cost of capital for those same companies falls. And that is good for the companies, but maybe not so great for investors. I wonder if you could talk about that phenomenon. I'm glad you brought this up because I think there's a lot of confusion out there uh, about this exact point. I think what a lot of people forget is that the expected return on a stock is exactly the same thing as the cost of capital for that stock. These are the, exactly the, the, the same concepts. And it's, it's funny because I'll often hear, um, especially ESG investors say, you know, I'm holding this green portfolio. I expect it to perform better than the market, yet I'm reducing the cost of capital for green companies. And when you hear people say that, you, well, that should immediately strike you as logically uh, inconsistent, right? It's, it's a contradiction, right? You can't have a high, a high expected return and a low expected return, right? So what our research implies is that it gets to exactly this question of do greener companies have a higher cost of capital or a lower cost of capital? Our research implies greener companies have lower costs of capital, and that's equivalent to having lower expected returns. It's the same as saying, I expect these green stocks to underperform brown stocks. It's also equivalent to saying green companies today, all else equal, have a higher price today. Having a high price today is the same as having low expected returns in the future. So it's like saying, look, green stocks benefit from ESG investors because these ESG investors give green companies a high stock price today. Equivalently, it gives them lower cost of capital. And that's not just good news for the, the company. It's also good news potentially for the environment, right? Because, you know, I think what many ESG investors intend to do by tilting green is that they intend to lower the cost of capital for a green company. They intend to increase the cost of capital for dirty companies. Now, whether that's, you know, whether they're moving the needle quantitatively it remains to be seen, but at least directionally, I mean, this is good news for the environment because it should shift capital and it should sh shift economic activity away from dirty companies and toward cleaner companies. So I think the, 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 the key question here then is also, is that enough of a shift to have a material impact on emissions and the environment? That's the key question. It's something that uh, we don't know yet and is, is being researched as we speak, including here at Wharton. I would highlight a... a a recent research paper by one of my Wharton colleagues, Jules Van Bensbergen, who tries to answer exactly that question and say, you know, is divestment from dirty companies going to move the needle quantitatively? And what he finds is the answer is no, unfortunately. Hmm. He finds even if a huge fraction of investors were to divest completely from dirty companies, it's just not going to change the cost of capital that much 
for those companies. It's not going to move the, the needle on those companies' investment decisions. It's just not going to shift that much capital away from dirty companies and toward cleaner companies. All right, Luke. So let me ask you a kind of related question on that cost of capital effect. So if what you're saying here is that more money flows, you know, as more money flows into green companies, their cost of capital falls. So it's cheaper for them to raise capital and therefore they invest more, right? They, they theoretically grow more quickly. From the investor's standpoint, as that cost of capital falls, their returns also decline. Does this thereby disincentivize investment into these companies, which would be a counter to the cost of capital, cheap cost of capital effect? It could. Uh, I think there are a lot of ESG investors out there who think that they can have their cake and eat it too. Right? They think that they can simultaneously lower the cost of capital for a greed company while expecting to outperform the market. And we're coming in and we're, I guess you could say we're raining on their, their ESG parade and we're saying, look, you can't have your cake and eat it too. We think what's most logical and consistent with the data is that when money floods into ESG investing, it does lower cost of capital for green companies. That's good for the environment. But it also, like you suggested, it, it lowers those ESG investors forward-looking expected returns. So it's possible there's some people who didn't understand that. And if we're raining on their parade and we're making ESG less attractive to them than they previously thought, that could disincentivize some ESG investment. But we think it's nevertheless an important message to get out there because we think people should be making informed choices. So I want to bring up another point. Seemingly missing from this whole discussion is direct consideration of the issue of climate risk, okay? Relative to all that we've discussed, to what extent is climate risk itself material to returns, particularly for companies such as those in fossil fuels and chemicals? Is that risk already baked into the market? And my intuition is that maybe it's not. Sure. We have a lot to say about climate risk. I mean, this measure of climate concerns, these shocks that we measure in our study, you could call those realizations of climate risk. We, And what we show is that, you know, climate risk shocks that arrived during this 10-year period, they really moved stock prices. In fact, they moved, so, they moved stock prices so much that um, they made green stocks outperform, even though we would have expected them to underperform. Now, you ask another interesting question, which is, are climate risks baked into prices already? Mm -hmm. If you think markets are efficient, then you would think that, yes, all stock prices reflect our expectations of how bad climate's going to get in the future. All those expectations should be baked into stock prices today and efficient market. So ESG portfolios often include individual companies that we might not think of as green. Okay, and I'm thinking of companies like Apple and Alphabet, which show up in a lot of, you know, green mutual funds and ETFs, but aren't green in the same way that a renewable energy company is. If we were to take a narrow, narrower view of what constitutes green, would the findings we discussed so far still hold? That's a good question. Uh, ESG measurement is a huge uh, challenge. It's something we're, we're still learning a lot about. We did look into that question a little bit. We found there were big differences across industries in how green or brown they were. And it makes sense once you think about it. We found that 
the, the most brown industries were the chemicals industry, the oil and gas industry, steel, uh, metals and mining, which would include coal, paper and forest products, marine transport. We know these are industries that have huge environmental impacts and pollute a lot. Was a little more surprising was what was on the green end of that distribution. We found the greenest industries were the asset management industry, the services industry, the telecom industry, which would include a lot of tech stocks, healthcare industries. So that that prompted us to look closer and look at it, maybe a, a narrower definition of greenness, like you suggested. And the way we looked a little more narrowly is we said, we said, you know, let's measure green versus brown differently. Let's now measure green versus brown relative to other companies in your industry. So you might take a chemicals company and label it green if it's greener than other chemicals companies. And so we tried doing, doing it that way, a within an industry green score. And what we found is that a lot of our results uh, got much weaker. When we do it within industry in that way, you don't see much outperformance of green versus brown. So really what, what we were finding is that it was green industries that massively outperformed brown industries over this, this period of time. So we talked earlier about shocks, policy shocks and their impacts on returns. What policy shocks might we see in the coming decade? And how big will these shocks need to be to increase green returns relative to brown? I think the, the, the most important policy shocks are going to relate to when and how much are governments around the world going to act on climate change. They're already acting to some degree, but... To how much are they going to ramp that up and when are they going to ramp that up? I think that's broadly the, the huge question out there. Our estimates, you know, according to our estimates, green stocks are expected to underperform going forward, but not by much, not by much. It wouldn't take much of a shock to overcome that expectation and result in further outperformance of green stocks uh, relative to brown. So I should be clear, we are not saying that we're certain green is gonna underperform going forward. We're saying we expect green to uh, underperform. We're saying the reason green outperformed in the past decade is green stocks in a sense got lucky. They got lucky, it's kind of a, a sick way to put it. They got lucky in the sense that there was this string of very bad news about climate. We could continue to see a string of uh, um, very bad news about climate that could lead governments to intervene sooner or to a greater degree, enough so that it, it could make green stocks continue to get lucky into the future. And it, it could make green stocks continue to outperform. But if they do outperform in the future, we would argue that outperformance is unexpected. It's not something a, a rational person should expect to happen. All right, Luke. So, so earlier, uh, a few minutes ago, you made reference to uh, the idea that maybe it's not the best idea to divest from brown companies to get the best, most positive environmental returns, let's say. Okay. And that it may actually be better to maintain investments in those companies to maintain leverage within the direction of those companies. There's some ongoing research into this area. It's pretty tricky. I can see the tomatoes flying at this podcast right now for even breaching the subject, but I wonder if you could kind of discuss 
the theory here and, and what the research is. It's a really, like you said, it's a very interesting and contentious area of research right now. I think the question here is, if you're an investor and you want to help the environment, what's the most effective way to help the environment? I can think of two broad strategies. Strategy number one is divest from the dirty companies, tilt your portfolio toward the clean companies. In theory, this should work, and it works through the cost of capital, right? It reduces cost of capital for green companies and vice versa for the brown companies. It should work in theory. And there is this paper showing that even though it should work in theory, quantitatively, the effects are looking really, really small. That's strategy number one. Strategy number two is very different. Strategy number two says, if you want to, if you want to help the environment, invest in dirty companies. Hmm. Use your power as a shareholder. Use your vote, for example, as a shareholder to change the way those companies operate and try to turn a brown company into a slightly less brown company. We've seen this happen. Uh, the kind of the classic uh, case on this is, is the hedge fund engine number one, taking a big stake in ExxonMobil and, and managing to make some material changes to that company. You know, there's a lot going for strategy number two, which I'll call the engage, shareholder engagement strategy. One thing it has going for it is, you know, think of a, there's a big problem with strategy number one. If you divest from dirty companies, you're going to sell those shares to somebody. Who's going to buy that share? Probably someone who cares a, about the environment a lot less than you do. So if you divest from fossil fuel companies, you're leaving fossil fuel companies in the control of people who care very little about the environment, right? So maybe that's why strategy number two could be more effective. But like I said, this is contentious. There's a lot more research needed on the question of, is it better to divest or is it better to engage? Luke, thanks very much for talking. Thanks, Andy. Today's guest has been Luke Taylor, a professor of finance at the Wharton School. His recent paper is titled Dissecting Green Returns. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for our archive of more than 140 podcast episodes, as well as research in upcoming in-person and virtual events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.